Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prince for October 18, 2020. Because there are so many people with diabetes that listen to Sound Prince, we're going to begin with part of an article that is from EverydayHealth.com. It is entitled, Metformin Recall Expanded, Things You Should Know If You're Taking the Diabetes Drug. This article was updated on October 16, 2020. Immediate release metformin, the most commonly prescribed version of the drug, is not being recalled. Eight drug companies are recalling more than 170 batches of extended-release ER metformin after lab tests detected high levels of N-nitrosodimethylamine, NDMA, a chemical that has been linked to cancer in animal research. As of October 5, 2020, Teva, Amnil, Apotex, Granulose, Lupin, Bayshore, Sun Pharmaceuticals, and Marsans have recalled their metformin. ER, according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA. Which batches of metformin are affected by the recall? Certain batches of metformin ER are being recalled, and the FDA hasn't indicated that metformin IR, the most commonly prescribed type of the drug, is impacted. What should you do if you take metformin to manage diabetes? Check to see if your metformin is part of the recall. If it is, don't abruptly stop taking your medication without speaking with your doctor first, the FDA urges in an October 20 statement. Doing so can send your blood sugar soaring, and that is risky in and of itself. Patients should continue taking their metformin until their pharmacist supplies a different manufacturer's product or their doctor prescribes a different treatment says Matt Peterson, Vice President of Medical Information and Professional Engagement for the ADA, in an official release. As for what to expect when you contact your provider, it'll depend on your individual health, but he or she may prescribe a different med that is not affected by the recall or potentially metformin IR. The solution in this instance is quite simple, says Caleb Alexander, M.D., the co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Drug Safety and Effectiveness in Baltimore. Patients can simply be switched to a shorter-acting formulation. What's the difference between metformin IR and metformin ER? Metformin IR, which is sold under the brand name Glucophage, G-L-U-C-O-P-H-A-G-E, is generally split up throughout the day, though you may take only one dose per day to start, notes the discount drug website GoodRx. On the other hand, Metformin ER, which is sold under the brand name Glucophage XR, is often taken one time per day. However, in some cases, your doctor may okay splitting up dosing. It depends. Check the bottle to learn which type of metformin you're taking. You can read the entire article about this recall by visiting everydayhealth.com.
Ever since the close of the 2020 ACB Virtual Convention in July, folks have been speculating on if ACB would have an in-person conference and convention in Phoenix, Arizona in 2021. Janet Dickelman, ACB Convention Coordinator, joins us on page two with important information about the 2021 convention, the result of the meeting of the ACB Board of Directors this past week. Janet explains the behind-the-scenes planning that is part of every convention and how those procedures and activities impact the 2021 decision. We take a trip around the Internet on page 3, as there have been several informative items posted this week. Check out ACB's recognition of White Cane Day and information on ways that Instacart can assist senior citizens with home delivery of grocery items. We hear much about contact tracing and how it can help prevent the spread of COVID-19, but how does it really work? You'll find that out on page three as well. And finally, we include two items from the newsletter for the Kentucky Talking Book Library, one on staffing and safety measures at the library during COVID-19, and the other on the need for us to return digital players if we are not using them. Page 4 is a fun feature that was shared at the October 16 roundabout. You'll find 35 incredible facts about the history of food found on the berriesandspice.com website. We hope that you enjoy this week's sound prints. Please feel free to give us a call at 502-895-4598 if you have questions or if you have suggestions for future sound prints features. Page two. I'm speaking with Janet Dickelman, who is going to be bringing us some news that occurred this past Tuesday, October 13, as part of the Board of Directors meeting of the American Council of the Blind. Many people tuned in and listened on ACB radio, but we also know that there's a lot of people who probably didn't hear this, and we want to make sure everybody is up to date on what's going on in ACB. So welcome, Janet. And as convention coordinator, I I want you to, to, to just bring us up to date, so I'm just going to be quiet and turn it over to you and uh, tell us what's happening and why. All right. Well, as Carla said, the Board of American Council of the Blind met Tuesday evening on October 13th, and we discussed the 2021 convention and what we needed to do to keep everyone safe and to make sure that we had a successful convention. And our concern always is for the health and safety of our attendees. That is paramount to everyone. And so the board voted unanimously to hold the convention virtually this year again. And we know that the convention is several months off, but it does not appear that the coronavirus is waning. And we know that travel is an issue. It seems to, and we know we wanted to give ample time to plan the best ever virtual convention. And we wanted to let the hotel know in time so that possibly they could rebook the space and make other arrangements. But as I said, our concern is for everyone's health and safety. And we're, the feeling was by the board, and as I said, this was a unanimous vote, that even in July of 2021, 
there's still going to be restrictions for social distancing and for travel. And with a large group like ours and with many of our attendees having additional underlying health conditions and being of the age, myself included, where it is deemed not to be safe to be around the virus, that it was best to go to to a virtual convention for 2021. So that is what the board decided. So we are already beginning plans on that. And we are taking, we had a resounding success in 2020. Um, Everyone, we had many first time attendees. We had many people who couldn't get to the convention because of health issues or work issues. And people really love the virtual nature. That's not to say that we don't want to have in-person conventions because, of course, we do. And we're certainly hoping that by 2022 for the Omaha Convention that we'll all be able to get together. But we do realize that we also have to have a very large online and Zoom presence for our attendees who cannot attend the convention. So this year we will, again, be virtual, as I said. And we know already that we are bringing back the very popular virtual audio described tour channel. And we will have some new tours to um, share with everyone. I don't know if we'll have some of the tours that we had last year, but I know we'll have some new ones. We will also have our exhibit hall and we're working on that and how to maybe do a little restructuring in the, it, for the exhibit hall to um, give more personal contact with exhibitors. ACB Radio is working or will have a couple of extra streams for us so we can stream more consecutive sessions or concurrent sessions on ACB Radio. A lot of people said, oh, there's so many things, it's so hard to choose. I'm going to be working with the affiliates and committees to try to, I don't want to, you know, micromanage anyone, but I'm going to try to get maybe some sessions moved around a little bit so that there's not quite as much competition so that um, throughout the week we have a steady number of sessions. We are going to make sure that things get into podcasts as early as possible so that a lot of people like that. People asked about having a Zoom hospitality room so that people could get together and just converse. We're we're trying to we're going to configure that. Um, so we'll have many months now rather than the end of March as we did for twenty twenty to plan this convention virtually. So our hope is that it will be the best ever. Janet, there was there was opinion expressed because this was not at the board meeting just uh the subject didn't just come up and somebody says, I make a motion. We have a oh, virtual convention. Dan, Dan did a great job. He had <laughs> yeah. every office, asked every officer and every board member to express their feelings, concerns, and opinions about it before a motion was even made. Right. And, and there were questions raised because some people said, you know, this is, this is October and couldn't we wait and decide later? And you had some very good remarks and explained the reasons why it could not wait. And it really needed to be decided now. And can you outline some of those 
for the listeners who who may not know how the convention planning works, how that process happens, and the timelines involved, and so why this decision was just pretty much a, a very, very important to be made at this time. Certainly. When the 2020 convention, when, when one convention ends, the convention committee and I start planning for the next convention. In October, generally, we go to the city, the host city, and start working with different tour venues. We go visit a myriad of places to come up with the tours that are going to be most enjoyable and most accessible for everyone. We work with bus companies and set to find a bus contract for our tour buses. We work with um, decorators and get contracts with them to set up the exhibit hall. By the end of the year, I normally have many deposits with tour venues so that we can keep our spot. We have a contract with a bus company to get the best rate possible. We have set up our exhibit hall with the decorator. We have worked many hours with the hotel, diagramming how we're going to set up all the meeting rooms and the, the general sessions. And we have been working with the host committee to come up with a list of local speakers. All of this is done before the end of the year. And a lot of deposits are involved. Also, as I said, we wanted to give the hotel ample time because we'll be, I'm working with the hotel now to hopefully reschedule our convention in uh, Phoenix in 2024. Had to think for a minute what year that would be. And <laughs> there's just a myriad of things. We go there when, when the convention committee goes to the hotel in the fall when the ACB board also meets. We go around the hotel. We, we basically have it all figured out already. All right, we're going to use this ballroom for general sessions. This is where the information desk is going to be. This is where we'll have the volunteer check-in. We'll get the buses to pick up here. Oh, wait, this is where the hotel says buses can pick up, but we feel this entrance is way better, so we're going to work with the hotel to get the buses to stop at this entrance. Marjorie, as our accessibility person, has gone through the hotel with a fine-tooth comb and written lengthy notes to give to the hotel about any accessibility issues and Braille that needs to be replaced and meeting room signs that aren't accurate and things that need to be moved in the hotel to make it safer for everyone. And we do all of that in the fall. And obviously, that is a lot of work. Not that anybody minds doing work, but it just did not seem to make sense to do all of this in preparation as we did for 2020 when we were are certain that an in-person convention is going to be very difficult in July. Also, with the hotel, we have a number of rooms that are contracted, and we have a number of an amount that we contract for our food and beverage for all of our luncheons and banquets and breakfast. If we don't meet those numbers, then the hotel will add on extra charges for us. We'll have to start paying rental for meeting rooms. We'll have to start paying for unused hotel rooms. So there's really a lot to consider in making this decision. That's very true. It's not only the time that's involved in the planning, and 
when you are, let's say, 80% sure even that you're not going to have that convention. So time, there's not only the time, but there's the cost involved with that time directly. For example, sending all the convention committee into the yes, venue. That travel. That's okay. right. A lot of that as well as the performance clauses. And if, if the hotel and sometimes tour venues as well, uh, if they can't rebook that space and you cancel, then you can have to uh, pay either part or all of that uh, space that you haven't used, but that you've prevented them from, from being able to, to, to sell to someone else. So I'm it's still different. waiting for a refund from a tour from the 2020 convention. I'm hopeful yes. that I'll receive it, but I'm we're, that we'll receive it, but we're still waiting. Yes, and you may or may not get that. Yes, but but we we know that even if we had not made this decision, if we put it off until the end of the year, like a few people su did suggest at the beginning of the conversation, um, then. At the end of the year, you come along and you make that decision. All you've done is delay giving those venues the opportunity to get someone else to use that space that you really know you're not going to use. That's and correct. that's not a good business decision uh, no. either for ACB or for the, uh, the contracted space. Yes, for the so, hotel or the Phoenix area. And that's we right. also felt that getting volunteers are – such a huge part of our convention we all love the volunteers and we're all you know so excited when we find one when we're lost or rushed trying to get somewhere and we felt that getting volunteers at what we're hoping is towards the end of a pandemic in in july would be very difficult i had one exhibitor who's there just about every single year say to me the other day this was prior to the board meeting that they really hoped that we did not go to Phoenix in 2021 because they said, just imagine in the exhibit hall, if we have a vaccine, but even if we haven't had it for a long time, even if it's perfect and we have it in time for everyone or many people to have the vaccine, but just imagine here we have a table in the exhibit area and we still need to be cleaning things. We need to be disinfecting. We need to be following all the protocols. And they said, just imagine every time a blind person comes up to the table, picks up an item, and puts it back down. That has to be disinfected. And we've got to clean that item. Yep. Yeah. I mean, from the standpoint and of having done the mini mall in the exhibit hall, that would be virtually an impossibility. And I think and I don't know about you, but my guide dog, Miss Chrissy, does not like to social distance. She wants to get right up by the next person, and she wants to go right up to that table. Yeah. And yeah. it's not easy for somebody who's blind or visually impaired to socially distance because, no. you know, we all, we all like the train way of getting from point A to point B. Well, it, it, it would be impossible just to get around because you can't tell everybody how they're going to get from point A to point right. B and have them follow it. 
yep. many people under the having to stay six feet away from everybody else, everybody who's maybe is a stranger, that would be just an impossible situation for many people. And we and know, you know in the Janet, ballroom we're certainly not six feet away from people. Right. No, we aren't. But you know, even if if other groups are going to conventions or holding their annual meetings or whatever, for a group of of blind and visually impaired people to try to do that would be just uh, a situation that we really don't believe that a lot of our people would be comfortable going out, getting on a plane. Just think about going through the airport and getting your assist from one plane to the next. You don't know who that person is going to be. You don't know what their lifestyle is. You don't know... Where, who they just helped to a different plane, and it, it's not if, – if you expect it to use uh, rooms and you only have 25% of the people who show up, that convention is going to be it, – it, it won't be a good situation for anybody concerned. It's it won't meet anybody's expectations. No, it's it is It's not worth the risk for our employees. I mean – I feel terrible if something happens to anyone during a convention. And, you know, things happen, obviously. But if something happened that was under our control, such as a virus like this, I feel that the the board felt that they needed to do their due diligence and this was the responsible thing to do. Well, I want to tell you, at our roundabout, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind roundabout, this past Friday, of course, the board meeting had happened on Tuesday, and we always have announcements. So we started out, and uh, I, I asked, did anybody have a chance to listen to the board meeting? And a few people did. And so I said, well, for those of you that haven't heard yet, we're going to not go to Phoenix. We're going to have a virtual convention. And there wasn't any comments that said, oh, I'm so disappointed but, Janet, there were several where people said, oh, I am so pleased. And, you know, it wasn't, it really wasn't pandemic related. It was people who could not go to Phoenix. Yes. You already know in in your groups that some people are not going to be able to get to the convention. And from the people who were not able to travel to this past convention, have not been able to travel to other conventions just because of, yeah, because of um, either financial considerations or illness, work, illness, family commitment. Um, Yeah. 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 A lot of, they were very happy Mm -hmm. because they know that they're going to be at that convention next time. I just thought this would be Do I want to be in an in-person convention and see everyone? Yes. Would I love to be going out for breakfast with Carla and sitting across the table and chatting with her? Yes, of course. Do I? Do you miss something with the virtual rather than you know the in person? Yes, of course. There, there's you know nothing can replace everyone being together, but nothing is more important than everyone's health and safety. Well, thank you for being on Soundprints with us today and All for right. shedding light on this yep. issue. Hold on, hold on. Don't you okay. can't get rid of me quite yet. All right. Um, if anyone wants to stay in tune with our convention announced list 
and you did not receive messages, email messages from the convention announced list in 2020, you can send a blank email to subscribe to this list, and that is acbconvention-subscribe at acblists.org. If you received messages for past conventions, you don't need to subscribe again. Always send me an email at janet.dickelman, D-I-C-K-E-L-M-A-N, at gmail.com, or call me at 651-428-5059. Okay. Well, thank you, Janet. This has been most informative, and I'm glad that you shared all of the details uh, with with people so they can understand how these decisions are made and why they have to be made this far ahead. Thank you so much, and we're really looking forward to hearing all of the exciting news and developments about the 2021 convention. And I'll that be will back be on some print as it gets closer. Page three, Around the Internet. For those of you who don't subscribe to email lists, or who don't have the ability to search the web, we've included several items that we think will be of interest that have been posted recently. The first is from ACB and is the importance of inclusion on White Cane Safety Day. This was posted on October 15, which was White Cane Safety Day. On the 56th commemoration of White Cane Safety Day, the American Council of the Blind, ACB, applauds all those who have advocated for independence through their work to promote the public visibility and equality of people who are blind or visually impaired by lifting up awareness to the meaning and purpose of the white cane. Quote, it's important we remind everyone on this day of the continuing need to break down barriers of inclusion, said ACB Executive Director Eric Bridges. It's particularly important at a time in our history when the impact of social distancing has placed a significant burden on the independence of people who are blind and visually impaired. The white cane is not only a mobility aid for people who are blind and visually impaired, but it serves as an icon that we are part of society, focusing on our ability rather than our disability. Since Congress first passed the White Cane Safety Day Resolution in 1964, advocates have heralded the day as a day of recognition to the power of independence and at the same time raising awareness to the need for assuring people who are blind can move freely and safely through our society. The unique constraints the COVID-19 pandemic has created, such as social distancing, amplifies the need to remember there are those in our community who rely on alternative methods of mobility, and we have an obligation to assure that such needs and concerns are included as our country works to restore social inclusion for all Americans. The coronavirus pandemic has created many new obstacles for those who rely on the sense of touch in order to move independently, said Clark Rackful. ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, social distancing has created a whole new set of anxieties the cane traveler must now contend with, 
making it more important than ever that we assure the voices of people who are blind or visually impaired are not shut out of the conversations as to how we must regain our national independence. The American Council of the Blind is a national grassroots consumer organization representing Americans who are blind and visually impaired. With 68 state and special interest affiliates, ACB works to increase the independence, security, equal opportunity, and quality of life for Americans who are blind and visually impaired. Learn more at www.acb.org. This next article was published by Instacart on Wednesday, October 14, and is entitled Introducing the Senior Support Service. Instacart's new Senior Support Service is now available to help customers who are 60-plus to use online grocery delivery and stay safe during the pandemic. In the past month alone, Instacart has brought more than 60,000 seniors online, and with the new service, help them learn how to safely and efficiently use grocery delivery. Call the Senior Support Service at 1-800-981-3433. Our dedicated support specialists for seniors are available to assist senior customers with setting up an Instacart account, filling their virtual cart, and placing their first order, learning how to use key features, like setting replacements and chatting with their shopper, troubleshooting issues and questions about existing orders. If you think Instacart Senior Support Service is something that can help you or a loved one, call the support service at 1-800-981-3433. This next article is from the Mayo Clinic and was published on October 15. It is entitled, Contact Tracing. What is it and how does it work? William F. Marshall III, M.D., answers as follows. Contact tracing is a tool that can help slow the spread of infectious diseases, such as coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19. In communities using contact tracing, clinics, labs, and hospitals send the names of people who have recently been diagnosed with COVID-19 to their local health department. The health department asks each person with COVID-19 about people with whom they've recently had close contact. Health department officials then quickly, usually within 24 hours, alert people who are close contacts that they may have been exposed to the COVID-19 virus. Officials don't share the name of the person who may have exposed them. This makes the contact tracing process anonymous and confidential. The sooner health officials can alert close contacts, the lower the risk of the COVID-19 virus spreading further. But not all health departments have enough staff to do contact tracing. Some areas are researching and experimenting with contact tracing apps that can be used. They also research how they can maintain and protect the privacy of individuals who use the apps. The hope is their apps can make it faster and easier to find and notify people who've been exposed to the COVID-19 virus. For COVID-19 contact tracing, a close contact is one 
who's been within six feet, two meters, of a person with COVID-19 within two days of the person's diagnosis. Close contacts can include family, friends, co-workers, and healthcare providers. The health department evaluates close contacts and asks them about symptoms. Health department staff members request that close contacts be tested for the virus that causes COVID-19. They generally give close contacts several instructions. These steps can help close contacts reduce the risk of unknowingly spreading the COVID-19 virus to others. For close contacts who don't have symptoms and can't be tested or test negative for the COVID-19 virus, doctors and the health department will ask them to self-quarantine at home for 14 days after they were exposed, request that they keep social distance from others, They may be asked to isolate themselves from family and pets and use a separate bedroom and bathroom. Request that they monitor their health and watch for any COVID-19 symptoms. Ask them to check their temperature twice a day. Ask them to let their doctor and health department know right away if they develop any symptoms. Request that they send doctors and the health department daily health updates. For close contacts who have symptoms and can't be tested, test positive for the COVID-19 virus, or develop symptoms, doctors and the health department will ask them to self-isolate and recover at home for at least 10 days and self-quarantine for 14 days after being exposed. People with symptoms will likely be asked to isolate themselves from family and pets and use a separate bedroom and bathroom. Ask them to seek medical care if they have any emergency warning signs, such as trouble breathing or persistent chest pain. Give them specific instructions to monitor their symptoms and avoid spreading the COVID-19 virus to others. Doctors may give different instructions to close contacts who have been diagnosed with the virus that causes COVID-19 in the past three months. Until a vaccine is available, communities will need to use other ways to reduce the spread of the COVID-19 virus. Contact tracing can be a powerful tool to help reduce the spread of the COVID-19 virus and help control the COVID-19 outbreak. From the Kentucky Talking Book Library newsletter, published also this week, comes the KTBL update. Kentucky Talking Book Library staff remain safe and healthy, and most continue to telecommute from home. Two librarians are available each day to take phone calls and provide customer service. Janet reports to KTBL daily, and Tracy and Susan take turns working in the office on alternate weeks. If possible, try not to call between noon and one as there is usually only one person available during lunch hours. Gary has not missed a day of work since the COVID pandemic began, so you have him to thank for getting your books checked in and out. Michael comes in as needed to repair and ship machines and accessories. Though our building remains closed to the public, Brian stays busy at home with post-production and conversion work 
while the studio is on hiatus. Barbara works in the office on Thursdays, and Jeff has stayed busy with his state library duties, so has not been available to answer KTBL phones. Safety first. Our number one priority during the COVID pandemic is the safety of our patrons and staff. All employees must wear a mask to enter the building, have their temperature taken upon entry, and fill out a daily form stating that we do not have any COVID symptoms. Masks are worn and social distancing practiced whenever we leave our desks, and some desks have been moved further apart. Many staff have even taken advantage of free monthly COVID testing for state employees. Safety applies to our audio and Braille books as well. We check in returned Braille and talking books upon arrival. Staff wear rubber gloves when handling them, and they clean work surfaces afterward. Then the books are placed in a quarantine area for seven days before being checked out to another patron or returned to the shelf. This quarantine time is based on the results of tests performed by a partnership between the Institute of Museum and Library Services, OCLC, a company that provides services to libraries, and Battelle, a science and technology research organization. While we feel that materials are safe when they leave our library, we cannot account for what happens in shipping. So please be diligent about your own safety and wash those hands often. Also from the KTBL newsletter comes the following information. Unused digital players. Do you have an unused digital talking book player taking up space in your home? Maybe you received a replacement player and have not gotten around to returning the old one. Maybe you have begun to use the Bard mobile app and no longer use a digital player. The longer it sits unused, the more likely it will not work. Please help us get that extra machine to someone who needs it now. NLS is designing a new generation player, but it is still several years away. In the meantime, we need your help to keep machines available for those who need them. Please return any unused digital talking book players to us, even if it does not work. Michael can fix it. If you do not have the box it came in, you can pack it in any box. Write free matter for the blind in place of the postage and address it to KTBL P.O. Box 537, Frankfort, Kentucky 40602. You can even call us at 800-372-2968 to request a pre-addressed mailing label to place on your box. By the way, the Kentucky Talking Book Library newsletter is available in large print, braille, audio, and electronic formats. The electronic version is distributed by email, Facebook, and Twitter, and appears on our website. The audio version is included on a cartridge along with your regular book circulation and is available through NFB Newsline. Contact KTBL to change your desired format. And the newsletter was made possible by a generous donation from the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. Learn more about Lions Club International at www.lionsclubs.org. 
Page 4. At Roundabout this week, we discussed all things food. We talked about how to incorporate more root vegetables into our diets, thanks to an article shared by Deb Lewis. Of course, we all love to talk about food. Our recording was not such that we were able to edit it and use it here on Soundprints, but we thought that you would enjoy part of the discussion. Food topics ranged from how to incorporate more root vegetables into our diets and the benefits of some of those vegetables. Then we talked about the diets that many people follow and the fact that any eating pattern or food plan that you follow is a diet, whether it has a fancy name or not. Finally, we talked about some interesting food facts and we shared an article from a website called berriesandspice.com that is entitled 35 Incredible Food Facts That Will Make You a Food History Genius. This site is very accessible, by the way, and is one that is really devoted to the restaurant industry. But you might enjoy checking it out because it does have recipes, it has food stories, and much more information. Eating great food is one of the best pleasures in life. But taste isn't everything, and we all know that knowledge is power. Delve into the wonders of food history, sociology, and economics. Discover 35 incredible food facts that will feed your curiosity and wow your friends. Number one, pasta is not Italian. Marco Polo brought it to Venice from China. As a matter of fact, the oldest type of pasta, well, noodle really, is 4,000 years old and used to be made out of millet. 2. Pasta was a common side dish during the Middle Ages and Renaissance, even in Italy. However, it wasn't until recently that it became a staple of Italian cuisine. Pasta became a popular main dish in Naples in the 17th century. Coincidentally, around the same time, a food crisis had shortened the meat supplies in local markets. 3. Pizza Margherita was a 19th century invention and was named after Italy's queen in 1859. The pizza was supposed to feature Italy's colors and was prepared for Queen Margherita by a baker named Raphael Esposito of Da Pietro. 4. The Spanish were the first to use tomatoes to make sauces. They were then followed by the Italians. Tomato sauce was often used to accompany meat or fish dishes. Trade, exchange, and new ingredients in Europe. 5. A single cargo ship in the 2nd century, bringing back pepper from India to Europe, would pay the annual salary of around 7,000 soldiers. That's how expensive pepper was. 6. Pepper remained so precious that the King of England appointed the Pepper's Guild as custodians of his weights to ensure that pepper was accurately weighed. This happened in 1180. Later, the Pepper's Guild merged with the Spicer's Guild to form the Company of Grocers, G-R-O-S-S-E-R-S, which was the word grocer, G-R-O-C-E-R, derives from. 7. 
It took around 300 years for Europeans to adopt most ingredients brought from America, like corn, potatoes, tomatoes, and chilies. 8. When tomatoes were brought to Europe during the Columbian Exchange, their only use was decorative. They used to taste sour and seemed suspicious since they are part of the toxic nightshade family. The fruit's now defining sweet taste was bred at a later stage, most likely by the Italians. 9. Chili peppers come from Mesoamerica. They were transported to Europe during the Columbian Exchange, where they spread further east. Europeans domesticated and engineered them to be more palatable, less spicy, and bigger, and this is how the bell pepper appeared. 10. Before the 17th century, spices were scarce, expensive, and only belonged to the ruling classes. With technological advances, they became more accessible and thus more affordable for the masses. At that point, the elites started looking for other luxury products, such as butter and pastry. Food and Politics 11. Ancient Greeks used oyster shells to cast votes. In trials, the jury would write the verdict onto the shell of an oyster. This points to the origin of the word ostracize, O-S-T-R-A-C-I-S-E, from Austrian, O-S-T-R-E-O-N, is the ancient Greek word for oyster. 12. In 1516, Bavaria instated Reinheitsgebot, a purity law that allowed beer to be made using only water, barley, and hops. Yeast had not been discovered and was occurring naturally. This was to avoid replacing hops with other bitter plants, common practice, some of which were poisonous, and barley with wheat, essential for bread. It is also one of the very first food safety laws in history. 13. During the 19th century, the English set harsh and restrictive controls over the Irish food supply. They brought the most valuable ingredients back to England, leaving the Irish to eat almost exclusively potatoes. This happened around the same time as the Great Famine, when potato crops got destroyed by blight. 14. One of the catalysts of the Arab Spring was the increase in the price of wheat, which ultimately increased the price of bread. The First Indonesia War and the First Russian Revolution are two other examples of conflicts that started from the lack of access to rice and, respectively, bread. 15. The poorer the country, the more disposable income people spend on food. In 2016, consumers in the United States spent 6.4% of their disposable income on food at home, while those in Nigeria reached 56.4%. This explains why poorer countries are prone to social unrest when commodities such as food become less accessible. Don't underestimate the carrot. Number 16. Carrots used to be white, yellow, or purple, tasteless, and fibrous. They were gradually domesticated to develop a more pleasant flavor.
and, just like the flavor, their color changed too. The now common orange carrot was developed by the Dutch in the 17th century. To honor William of Orange and the formation of the Dutch Republic. 17. During World War II, the British made the Germans believe that their pilots could see in the dark, thanks to a carrot-heavy diet. This made British innovations, such as improved radar systems and red light in the cockpit that protected the pilot's eyesight at night, harder for the Germans to figure out. 18. China is the world's largest carrot producer. In 2011, it accounted for over 45% of the global carrot output. On food, eating, and social status. Number 19. Saffron is the world's most expensive spice. Alexander the Great used to dye his hair with saffron to appear more godly. Cleopatra also loved the luxury spice. She used to bathe in saffron-infused mare's milk before meeting her suitors. 20. Forks have only been used as eating utensils since the late Middle Ages because of their controversial nature. They were particularly common in Italy and Spain. They had, however, been used since antiquity for cooking purposes. 21. The first writings on table manners appeared in the 13th century. Their purposes were to separate aristocrats, those who know the rules, from peasants, those who don't. 22. The table etiquette as we know it today was developed during the Renaissance and has not changed much since. This was a major shift from medieval eating habits, where cutlery was shared People drank soup straight from the bowl and wiped their hands directly on the tablecloth. 23. Victorian women and girls believed that eating meat made them uncivilized. They thought consuming meat caused teenage insanity and nymphomania. Another Victorian belief was that women should not be seen eating. 24. Food journalism was born in France after the French Revolution. Its purpose was to teach the new bourgeois the savoir-vivre of the old aristocracy. What we eat today. 25. The notion of dessert, a sweet dish following a main course, only appeared in the 17th century. This was at the time that sugar became increasingly more accessible through colonial plantations, most of which were in the Caribbean. This led to the creation of the confectioner, a tradesman focused on all things sweet. 26. Before the 19th century, Britain's cuisine consisted of diverse spice and aromatic rich dishes. As a new urban middle class emerged after the Industrial Revolution, many untrained women were employed as cooks. This consequently declined the standards of cooking. It also set the foundations of modern British cuisine, often stereotyped through its sogginess and lack of flavor. 27. In 1948, Britain passed a law allowing all Commonwealth citizens to work in the UK which led to a large inflow of migrants from India and Pakistan. 
That was when curry houses started to bloom in the UK. In 2016, there were more than 12,000 of them around the country. 28. Foie gras can be produced without force-feeding the geese. Eduardo Sousa has been doing this for years. He realized that geese gorge to store up fat before migration, producing a naturally fattened liver. This technique dates back to ancient Egypt, where the meat of geese that gorged on figs before migrating was popular among the ruling classes. The chicken or the egg? 29. The majority of the chickens that we eat today descend from the winners of the Chicken of Tomorrow contest that took place in the United States in 1948. The purpose was to find the ideal chicken for the hungry family, large, meaty, and cheap. 30. Fried chicken became popular in southern United States after the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863. Black women, just freed from slavery, started cooking and selling the Southern American staple. The first hot chicken establishment opened in a black neighborhood in Nashville in 1945. It was called Prince's BBQ Chicken Shack, currently known as Prince's Hot Chicken. What is food without a drink to go with it? Number 31. The oldest beer recipe in the world dates back to 1800 B.C. in Mesopotamia. In fact, beer was so important for the Sumerians that they even created a goddess of brewing, Ninkasi, N-I-N-K-A-S-I. The recipe is written in the form of a poem addressed to the goddess. A professor from the University of Chicago, Miguel Civil, translated it from two clay tablets. 32. Archaeologists discovered the oldest winemaking traces in Georgia, in the Katli region, K-A-T-T-L-I, south of Belisi, T-B-I-L-I-S-I. They are 8,000 years old. 33. Unlike popular belief, tequila is actually a mezcal, M-E-Z-C-A-L, an alcoholic drink made from agave. In 1974, the Mexican government gave the popular drink a D.O., denomination of origin. This means that tequila can only be produced in very specific areas of Mexico and must contain specific information on the label. 34. Gin originates from a Dutch medicinal liqueur made with juniper berries called Genever, G-E-N-E-V-E-R. The drink became popular when William of Orange became William III, King of England, Ireland, and Scotland in 1689. And last but not least, 35. The Chinese beer market is the largest in the world. Between 1981 and 1995, annual beer consumption increased from 1 billion liters to 13 billion liters. In 2018, the annual beer consumption in China reached almost 50 billion liters. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 
or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.